Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Happy New Year and welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. This week marks the start of the 2023 legislative session. What can we expect from lawmakers this year? Here to offer a preview and some analysis are Providence College political science professor Tony Affine and Jim Hummel, host of A Lively Experiment on Rhode Island PBS. Our conversation after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with Providence College political science professor Tony Affine and Jim Hummel, host of A Lively Experiment on Rhode Island PBS. Welcome, Tony and Jim. Thank you, Ed. Hey, Happy Ed. New Year. To you, too. Hey, before we get going, we just learned that former Governor Lincoln Allman has died. So, Jim, I wanted to ask what you'll remember about Governor Allman. Well, I'll tell you, Lincoln Allman was a big change from Bruce Sundlin, who we had for four years. He was a little bit more of a straight shooter, former federal prosecutor. And he was a guy when he was a federal prosecutor, Ed, there were no spokesmen or flax or people to get in the way. He'd call the newsroom and say, I'm having a press conference in half an hour on the indictment show up at my office. The one story that I remember, though, was the day after he was inaugurated for his second term. And remember, he was the first four-year governor. Right, right. He changed the Constitution for all the state officers. Somebody brought in a McDonald's Happy Meal at his desk. So he's sitting there. They got a gaggle of reporters. Every soundbite went for about 50 seconds because you talk about policy and then you have to take a bite and you'd have to chew. And what do the consultants tell you? Never eat in front of a reporter. <laughs> the, tie, the French fry and a, a glob of ketchup fall on his tie. So Eric to Cody, who's his, his oh, uh, yeah. spokesman, he's like, what do I do? Do I let my boss go on and on or do I have to interrupt him? So he's like, psst, psst. He's like pointing at him. The governor goes, oops, picks the French fry up and eats it off of his. <laughs> and it sounds weird in retrospect, but he didn't care. He was like, you know what? Not a pretentious guy. Exactly. No. So rest in peace, Lincoln Almond. Tony, what do you expect to be the top priority for the General Assembly with the legislative session getting going this week? 
Well, it's hard to tell. The legislature is a, sometimes a machine that's hidden behind many layers of darkness. But at least what we've heard from the leadership so far is they will be focused on some of the top issues of the day, such as housing, affordability, housing availability, also the environment. But at least what we've heard from the leadership so far, their top priorities will revolve around the structure and the composition of state government. The Senate president is interested in restructuring health and human services. That could be a battle royale up there in the legislature. I think the issues over which the legislature has very little control, that is the cost and the availability of housing and uh, the environmental crisis that seems to be accelerating, especially along the coast, uh, will occupy a lot more of their time than they might like. Jim, what do you uh, see as the top priority in 2023? It's this big pot of money to me that is interesting now. It's the inverse of what we've seen for years. How many legislative sessions have you and I covered? $250 million structural deficit. Well, now they have a $600 million surplus plus all of the ARPA money that they have to go through. So I think the legislative priorities that Tony outlined spot on. But I think the budget is going to be an interesting conversation because Joe Sicarci, the speaker, said, I have 10 times the number of requests as we do money to give out. The governor's thrown in a bit of a fastball by saying he wants to cut the sales tax. How much does that cost you? Right, because right, I yeah. think there's a nervousness up at the legislature. They've been there so many times with the sea of red ink the tide can turn very quickly. When you cut that sales tax, it's baked into the budget going forward. Well, yeah, that's what I was curious about. How willing is the legislative leadership to go along with that? Because Governor McKee did float that idea last year and it didn't fly. He's talked about the importance of making our sales tax rate more comparable to Massachusetts and Connecticut. But uh, I've heard legislators talk about the number of exceptions to the sales tax uh, that we have here in Rhode Island, that you'd have to shrink that, make it narrower. Well, but then, so is that just a tax of another sort? So is it a shell game? You know, for years, Governor Raimondo, she said, we're not raising any broad-based taxes, but they tried to double how much it costs to go to Scarborough. Remember that? And that drove people nuts. It's like, why do we live in Rhode Island? So ultimately, money is money. What I'm interested to see is what the budget's going to be. Because you remember the governor during the debates, the budget five years ago was $9.4 or $5 billion. Now all that federal money has kind of inflated and made it a little bit different. That money we're not going to have because he said during one of the debates, well, how much is the budget going to be this year? He said it's going to be back in the $11 billion Well, that's, uh, that's going to be the pushback from the legislature is that uh, they'll be reluctant to reduce uh, local revenues because they're looking at an end to a lot of those uh, supplementals that came from the federal government. It's very difficult in the best of times to convince any legislature to reduce uh, their revenue. It's a lot easier to talk about reducing expenditures. That's more politically palatable. But when you look at the kind of pressure that the legislature will be under to address things like the housing crisis, to address environmental change, to address the need for uh, more EV chargers and a, a better infrastructure for solar and wind energy, I think it's the, the governor has going to have a tough sell at the legislature to, to push them to uh, reduce any form of uh, revenue that, that doesn't seem to be. And, and uh, you know, let's look at the evidence. Is there evidence that reducing the sales tax by a half a penny or a penny is going to make a significant difference in the economic fortunes of the state or inflation? It's a lot easier to see the damage, let's call it, that a reduction in revenues will do uh, than it is to make the case for the economic harm that a sales tax, that people are quite uh, familiar with. The sales tax has been at the same level for quite a while. As you point out, Rhode Island is facing a housing crisis. What can the Assembly do to address that problem? 
Well, the, the first thing is to address the regulatory environment at the local level to make it possible, uh, make it more possible for local housing authorities who are exempt from many of the regulatory restrictions to actually get in the business of developing new and affordable housing. The speaker, to his credit, has raised the issue of actually getting involved in social housing, incentivizing developers to build new affordable housing and create a regulatory environment, a fiscal environment that makes that feasible. But there was there was pushback from the League of Cities and Towns last year and some towns saying there was this bill that said, you know, any vacant school building, municipal building, it has to be put on this registry. Well, you know, all of a sudden everybody's like, oh, the registry, right? And and so they had to amend it to say only if you want to give that up. Because in my town, they had a couple of, you know how the enrollment goes. It goes up and down. They, they had mothballed a couple of schools that they wound up needing down the line. So is the state going to say, okay, you really need to develop that into affordable housing, and then ultimately, what's the local control? Well, that that's to be negotiated. There, there are a lot of buildings that would be feasible for housing. They, they don't have to take schools. I, I agree. I think you know, closing a school that you might need in a couple of years is kind of Pennywise and pound But foolish. you see there's also a disagreement between McKee, Sakarchi, and Ruggiero about relaxing the zoning or that type of thing. That's where the, the rubber's going to yeah, hit the road. Yeah, I, I think you're on to something because there's only seven out of the 39 cities and towns that meet the requirement that calls for 10% of the housing stock to be low or moderate income housing. So what can be what can be done to address that number? What, what can be done, Tony, do you think, to increase the number of towns meeting that crossing that threshold? Well, uh, a combination of regulatory change that makes it more difficult for local communities to resist developments that would be reasonable and would provide affordable housing for people, but also some incentives. I think some uh, some state incentives that provide developers and towns with reasons, positive reasons to develop affordable housing. There's the concept of transit-oriented development, where a developer with support from the state and municipal Municipalities will de- create a development from scratch that is near public transit, that is near highways, that includes mixed income housing, includes residential and commercial space, includes office space, creates a walkable community. So if you think a little bigger, in areas that are not already overcrowded, the state could potentially incentivize some really creative projects that combine housing with economic development, with employment, with transportation, which has environmental implications. New buildings can be much more energy efficient. Uh, new developments can have solar built into the design of the buildings rather than cutting down trees for solar farms. You put solar panels on the top of every flat roof in the, in the area. So there's a lot of creative things that can be done that wouldn't necessarily generate the kind of opposition at the municipal level that a developer or the state saying, let's let's take that school and turn that into apartments. Last year, saw the Assembly pass three gun control bills, including a ban on magazine capacity. Jim, do you expect the assault weapons ban to pass this year or, or any other gun measure? I, you know, I don't know. And gun control, if you remember, was not on anybody's radar screen until the Uvalde shooting right. late in the session. And I think that, quite frankly, wiped out some, some potential changes in the law enforcement officer's Bill of Rights. They only have so much air up there especially at the end of the session. And I think gun control was such a huge thing. Uh, You know, every year, uh, Ed, it's been incremental. I almost look at it like drunk driving. You remember it used to be a civil penalty, and then they went to .1, and then there was .08. You don't get it all at once. So they've incrementally passed some things. I, it's a toss-up as to whether they would get an assault weapons ban. 
Yeah, you mentioned Leobor. Tony, it's been two and a half years since George Floyd was killed, and there's been no sign of action on measures designed to increase accountability for police misconduct. Is there anything ever going to come out of the effort to revamp that law enforcement officer's Bill of Rights? Well, I think there's going to be continued public pressure, uh, certainly from the uh, social justice communities, the the urban communities that feel that their targets are victims of police violence. I think things are unlikely to change until police leadership and the FOP decide that there are some reasonable uh, reforms to Leobor are in order. Rhode Island has one of the strongest protections in the country for police officers who have been charged with violations either of law or department policy. One of the things we looked at in Providence a couple of years ago when I was on the Ethics Commission was to consider police violence, inappropriate use of police force as an ethics violation. It's not simply a criminal violation, but it's unethical for an individual to use the power that's granted to them by the people of the city in ways that are not authorized. So I think there's some creative ways, once again, we need more creative thinking. And I think Happily, there are a lot of younger folks up in the legislature. There are a lot of people thinking outside the box. So the, the last couple of elections have brought some uh, real creative thinkers into the legislature. So hopefully the question of police violence against citizens will not always revolve around a single bill, the Leo Boer, but people will approach it from a variety of different directions. That may be the way to get progress. Leo Boer itself is not likely to change until police leadership and the rank and file are on the same page with the general public on the need for protecting the public as as much as police officers. Yeah, don't hold your breath. They're not going to get on the same page. It's going to have – somebody's having to make a decision and it's either going to be decided or not because there's no way the the police union is going to say, okay, let's increase the two-day suspension to 10 or 15. It's not going to happen. Last year's legislative session ended just before the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Jim, do you expect the Assembly to pass the Equality and Abortion Coverage Act, which would provide abortion coverage for Medicaid recipients and state workers? They certainly have the votes for it. So if the leadership's behind it, I don't see any impediments to that. And Tony, talk to us about the diversity in the General Assembly. Last year was the most diverse assembly in Rhode Island history, uh, maybe down one or two seats uh, this year. But uh, how how much sway do some of the younger, more diverse members of the legislature have? As you know, when the first African-American and Latino legislators were elected beginning in the early 1990s, it was pretty lonely up there for them. And to the extent that they were able to build influence, it was built slowly over time, working with the leadership. The last couple of legislative elections have brought to the General Assembly a younger, more assertive Black, Latino, and now Asian-American legislators. Who do you have in mind there? Give me a few examples. Well, folks like Enrique Sanchez, uh, just elected to replace Anastasia Williams, Senator Gu, Senator-elect Gu, Senator-elect Ujifusa. Very strong, very accomplished professionals in their areas of life. Previously, Senator Acosta, one of my former students. Uh, oh, no from, kidding. Yeah. They don't need to wait as long as that first wave of legislators of color did. Their personalities are somewhat more assertive, and they're also in a very different social context. The Black Lives Matter movement, even since the mid-2000s, the immigrant rights movement all across the country, has created a base of support in the public that the first wave of legislators of color, Black and Latino legislators, simply didn't have. Let's end uh, with a New Year's resolution you wish the General Assembly would make in 2023. Jim? Let's keep mine simple. Let's not have the Finance Committee 
vote on a bu- a 8,000 page budget that comes out. Oh, it's scheduled for 7 p.m. Now it's still 9 p.m. And it's, you know, it comes off the ditto machine at 11. It's still still warm. Fr- Yeah, still warm. And then they vote in 13 minutes. Now the speakers will always say, well, the finance committee has been looking at this and this is not a surprise or whatever. Where's the public disclosure here? Let's post it. At noon on Friday, let's have all the reporters be able to go through it, and let's wait 24 hours before the Finance Committee takes a vote, and then it goes to the House. Can't we move up? Everybody's like, we got to get out of here. We got to get out of here. You know what? Adjust your schedule a little bit, leadership, and let's get it done. Let's be a little bit more transparent. Yeah, what what he said. Tony? Oh, I think they need to take climate change much more seriously. They need to follow up on all of the uh, recent legislation. They need to get serious about public transit, about free RIPTA, about uh, electric buses for RIPTA, uh, stimulating development of electric vehicles and e-bikes and bicycles as well. Rhode Island will suffer more than almost any state in the country as sea levels continue to rise. And I think the legislature needs to take advantage of this interregnum between crises, between hurricanes, and do some planning for the future. Professor Tony Affinier and Jim Hummel, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Ed. Thanks, Ed. For more coverage of the new legislative session, go to globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. Here are some more stories from our team. Alexa Gigas breaks down the new business stories to watch in Rhode Island in 2023. Alexa also has a Q&A with the founder of Moss Pure, which designs living pieces of moss art and walls for individuals and businesses. And our columnist Dan McGowan has a remembrance of the late governor, Lincoln Almond. For these stories and more, go to globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. And if you like the podcast, do us a favor. Subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.